Would you turn your Bible, please, to Matthew chapter 16. Matthew, the 16th chapter. In Matthew chapter 16, we want to begin with verse 13. Matthew 16, verse 13. My heart's really been blessed with this beautiful music this morning. I believe all of us have been. Such a joy to be here in the house of the Lord. Matthew uh, chapter 16, and in just a moment begin with verse 13. Let's bow together in a word of prayer before we begin. Our Heavenly Father, we thank Thee for the privilege of prayer. We're grateful that God has spoken to every heart here already through the beautiful music and through the praise to Jesus by the congregation. We pray now that the Word of God will be sharp and quick and powerful and may all of our hearts be filled as Jesus speaks to us. Pray that if there's one person here who has never been saved that that one will come to Jesus today. In Christ's name, amen. I like to preach on this text. Those of you who have been here for a while know that I've spoken from Matthew 16 many, many times. I don't know, every time I open a passage of Scripture, I think that may be my favorite passage. This is one of them. Matthew 16, beginning with verse 13. Listen. When Jesus came into the coasts of Caesarea Philippi, He asked His disciples, saying, Who do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? And they said, Some say that thou art John the Baptist, some Elijah, and others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. He saith unto them, But who say ye that I am? And Simon Peter answered and said, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered and said unto him, Blessed art thou, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood hath not revealed it unto thee, but my Father who is in heaven. And I say unto thee that thou art Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And I will give unto thee the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatsoever thou shalt bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatsoever thou shalt loose in earth shall be loosed in heaven. Then charged he his disciples that they should tell no man. It was the middle of the ministry of Jesus. He had already fed 5,000 and fed 4,000. The transfiguration had taken place. Peter, James, and John were on the mountain with him. They saw the Lord discuss with Moses and Elijah his decease at Jerusalem. They saw him literally transfigured before them. But they were still not quite sure who he was. And so Jesus went to the coasts of Caesarea Philippi. Those of you who have been to Israel remember that this was in the Golan Heights section along the Lebanese border. As a matter of fact, it's where much of the battle is taking place between Israel and the the Palestinian Liberation Forces right right now. It is the foothills of Mount Hermon Many believe that the transfiguration took place on Mount Hermon, which is a snow-capped mountain in northern Palestine. 
Jesus gathered his best friends together to him, and he began to say to them, who do men say that I am? Well, some said, uh, they're saying you're Elijah. They recognized in Jesus some characteristics of that prophet who was so powerful that he prayed and it didn't rain for three years. He prayed again and the rain came. He had a contest on Mount Carmel and called down fire from God and consumed all those wet altars of Baal. They recognized in Jesus something about Elijah. They said, well, you must be Elijah. Others said, no, he's Jeremiah. Now, Jeremiah was the weeping prophet. He had preached to Jerusalem for 40 years. He had warned them to turn back to God. Jeremiah's one main message was, my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and hewn them out cisterns that can hold no water. Jeremiah would often repair to a place called Jeremiah's Grotto on the northern tip of Mount Moriah, where five to six hundred years later, the Lord Jesus would go to die for the sins of the world on Mount Calvary. And on, at Jeremiah's Grotto, Jeremiah would weep for the sins of the people and pray and call Jerusalem to God. Sometimes Jesus would go and pray and he'd say, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how oft would I have gathered thee as a mother hen would gather her little chicks, but you wouldn't come. They said, he must be Jeremiah. Somebody else said, well, we're not sure whether you're Elijah or Jeremiah or just who you are, but you must be one of the prophets. Maybe you're Isaiah. They put him between two trees and sawed him asunder. We're really not sure who you are. Jesus turned to the inner circle and he said, but who do you say I am? And Simon Peter answered without the flinch of an eye. He said, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. Now this is the first time in the New Testament anybody has recognized Jesus as the Son of God. You see, Jesus didn't come carrying a banner and say, I'm the Messiah, I'm the Son of God. He stood in the midst of people. He proclaimed truth. He performed truth. He did truth, he was truth, and only those who had the spiritual perception to recognize that could understand who he was. It's the same way today. Most of the world doesn't understand who Jesus is. A lot of the world is a little bit churchy because the church has had a strong influence on the world in regard to morals and so on. The world is a little bit churchy. The church is becoming more and more worldly. Most people can't quite tell who is which. But much of the world doesn't know who Jesus is. Matter of fact, as we meet here this morning, on the last Sunday of June, 1982, there are four billions of people in this world. And statistics tell us that only one billion profess any kind of faith in Jesus Christ. That means three billions of people in this world do not know the Lord. We have a tremendous missionary task 
to get the gospel out to the ends of the earth. And of that one million, one billion people, I hope I said billion a while ago, of that one billion people, maybe 25 to 40 percent have had a personal conversion experience with Jesus Christ. Well, they said, Peter said, you're the Christ, the Son of the living God. And then Jesus said something phenomenal. He said, blessed art thou, Simon, son of Jonah. Flesh and blood did not reveal this unto thee, but my Father which is in heaven. And I say unto thee that thou art Petros, a little pebble. But upon this Petra, this rock, I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Peter, you're a little pebble. Like all those pebbles down on the seashore, you're like a little pebble. But upon this Petra, I will build my ecclesia. The word church is a translation from the Latin kirk, which was in turn a translation from the Greek ecclesia. And the word ecclesia means a called out assembly of believers. A called out assembly. Jesus made an assembly of believers. In the Greek, it was a called out assembly. They used to have ecclesias in the cities. They were Greek town meetings, like we would call a town meeting. And there we would discuss, have a beef session. There we would discuss the things of the city. Jesus said, I'm going to have an ecclesia. I'm going to have a called out assembly. It will be called out from the world unto me, and it will be built upon the rock. And in the New Testament, as well as the Old Testament, the rock always symbolized deity. And so Jesus is saying, Peter, you're a little pebble, and you're going to help make up the congregation of the believers that will be built upon the foundation of the rock, which is Christ. Jesus Christ himself, the chief cornerstone. As far as we can tell, this is the first mention of the founding of the church in the New Testament. And so we're led to believe that Jesus himself founded the church. He started it. In Matthew 16, he founded the church. In Matthew 28, he commissioned the church. If you'll turn your Bible to Matthew 28, verses 19 and 20. Jesus said, All authority is given in me, to me in heaven and in earth. Go ye therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the, Holy, and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even unto the end of the age. This was the commissioning of the church. Jesus gave the church a purpose, the one flaming purpose. Some believe the purpose of the church is to worship. Well, that's an important facet of the church, but the purpose of the church was what Jesus told it to do. He said, go ye therefore, make disciples, teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you, and lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. That's the commission of the church. Now, look in chapter, Acts chapter 1, verse 8. Jesus empowered the church. In Acts chapter 1, verse 8,
Jesus said, Tarry ye in Jerusalem till ye be endued with power. But ye shall receive power after the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And ye shall be witnesses unto me both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and in Samaria and unto the uttermost parts of the earth. You will be witnesses. All right, Jesus founded the church in Matthew 16. He commissioned the church in Matthew 28. He empowered the church in Acts chapter 1. Ye shall receive power after the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and ye shall be witnesses unto me both in Jerusalem and all Judea and in Samaria and unto the uttermost parts of the earth. And the rest of the book of Acts and the rest of the New Testament is the unveiling of that outline. The disciples tarried in Jerusalem until they were filled with the Holy Spirit at the day of Pentecost. Corporately, the body of Christ was baptized by the Holy Spirit on that day, a once and for all baptism of the church. Since that day, every believer who has come to Christ has been spiritually baptized into the body of Christ at the point of conversion. You're sealed by that Holy Spirit of promise according to Ephesians chapter 1, 13, 14, 15, 16, and 17. Now, water baptism is the outward picture of an inward story. Water baptism has never saved anybody. It can never save anybody. It's the outward demonstration of an inward reality. It's the outward photograph of an inward situation. It says to everybody, this is what Jesus did for me. He lived, he died and was buried, and he arose again, and he did it for me. And every believer who has taken Jesus seriously has wanted to follow the Lord in believer's baptism. We had a lady follow Jesus in baptism this morning. Last Friday at Bible school, we had three people follow Jesus in baptism. Last Sunday morning, last Sunday night, I pray there will be others who will come and say, I've trusted Christ. Jesus is my Savior. I want everybody to know it. I'm not ashamed of it. You see, baptism through the years has meant a burning of bridges behind you. Felix Muntz taught that every believer ought to be immersed. They took him out in the middle of the Lamont River in Zurich, Switzerland. They bound him hand and feet. They said, Mr. Muntz, you've been teaching that everybody ought to be baptized after they've been saved. Now, we don't believe that. We'll give you one more chance to recant. Felix Muntz said, I would rather die than to change the teaching of the Bible. And they led him down to the Lamont River and drowned him for his stand on believer's baptism. You say baptism isn't important? Jesus walked 60 miles all the way from Nazareth to the jungle of the Jordan to be baptized. Why? Not to be saved. Somebody says, well, I'll tell you, you don't have to be baptized to be saved, therefore baptism isn't very important. Oh, yes. The Scripture taught, teaches that everybody that gets saved needs to follow Jesus in baptism, not in order to get to heavens, but so that people on earth can see that you're an obedient disciple of the Lord. Now, kids, you all are old enough not to draw pictures and so on. You look up here at me. All right, thank you very much. Little kids need that, but you all don't, do you? <laughs> right? Thank you. All right. Now, every believer needs to follow Jesus in baptism. 
And after we're baptized into the fellowship of the faithful, then we become part of Christ's local body on this earth. And for just a few moments, I want to talk to you about the price of building a soul-winning church. The church that Jesus died for, there's a price if we're to construct and build the kind of church God wants His church to be. First of all, we need to be satisfied just to please Jesus. And beloved, that's a big mouthful. Most of the time, we're not satisfied to do that. We look around and see what others are doing, and we want to be like everybody else. Israel tried that. They looked around and saw that all the nations had kings, and they came to Samuel and said, Samuel, give us a king. And Samuel said, God doesn't want you to have a king. Your nation is a theocracy. God is your king. Well, they said every other nation has kings, the Midianites and the Philistines and the Amorites and the Jebusites and all these others have kings. We want a king. Give us a king. It was never God's will, but God gave them a king. And sometimes churches look all around and we say, well, look at such and such and look at this and they've got this and they're doing this and so on. And we want to be like everybody else. What we need to do is go to the New Testament and find out what God has for His church to do and then do that. We need to be satisfied to please Jesus in our lives, in our personal lives, in our corporate body as a body of believers. What would Jesus have us do? In order to find that out, you don't read the church fathers. There's nothing wrong with that. You don't read church history, though I believe in that, and I minored in church history. I, I minored in history. I love it. But we need to read what the Bible says. And you read the first six chapters of Acts, and you find what the New Testament church did. Very briefly, on the day of Pentecost, there were 120 in the upper room. They had come down, and they got filled with the Holy Spirit. In chapter 2 of Acts, they went all over the city of Jerusalem, gossiping the gospel. They told the gospel in the tongue of the people that were there. There were people from all over the world. And the miracle of the tongues was the miracle of languages. They spoke the language of the people, wherever they were in Jerusalem, where they, where they had come from, they heard the glorious truth of the gospel. And then Peter stood up and preached. That's always central in the church, the preaching of the Word of God. Peter stood up and preached, and 3,000 people got saved. And that day the Lord added to the church those that were saved, and 3,000 people followed Jesus in baptism. Now, you don't go very far. You go to chapter 4, and you find many of them who heard the word believed, and the number of the men was about 5,000. So now you have 5,000 plus 3,000. That's 8,000 plus 120. That's 8,120. And everybody knows where you have 5,000 men, you have 5,000 women. And when you have 5,000 men, 5,000 women, you probably have at least 5,000 children, maybe 10,000. And so you see that the work is growing. And now, perhaps there are 15 to 20 to 25,000 part of the New Testament church. How come? Well, they didn't settle down to play ball games. They didn't go out playing golf and sit down and watch television, watch and see who the giants were beating the ants or dwarfs. 
they went out talking about Jesus. Everywhere they went, they talked about the Lord. This was their business. This was the supreme business of their life. They wanted to please Jesus. Jesus had said, go ye. And they didn't have any better sense than to go. They just did what God said to go. What God said to do, and they went. Now, look in the last part of chapter 4 of Acts. In verse 29, now, Lord, behold their threatenings. You see, they got threatened. And grant unto thy servants that with all boldness they may speak thy word by stretching forth thine hand to heal. And look down at verse 31. And when they had prayed, the place was shaken where they were assembled together. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. And they spoke the word of God with boldness. Verse 32. And the multitude of those that believed were of one heart and of one soul. Neither said any of them that any of the things which he possessed was his own, but they had all things common. With great power gave the apostles witness to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And great grace was upon them all. Now by this time there were multitudes. I don't know how many that is. What is a multitude? Hundreds of thousands who had believed upon Christ. Look in chapter 5, verse 12. And by the hands of the apostles were many signs and wonders wrought among the people, and they were all with one accord in Solomon's porch, and the rest dared no man join himself to them, but the people magnified them. And the believers were the more added to the Lord, multitudes both of men and of women. And we come to chapter 6, verse 1. In those days when the number of the disciples was multiplied, there were multiplied hundreds and thousands of believers because they had sought to please Jesus. They were satisfied just to please the Lord Jesus. Let's duplicate that. You can't help but be challenged by some of the great men of God who are, who are challenging Christians all over America, all over the world. Today, we're living in the age of soul-winning churches. Perhaps there has been more of a resurgence of soul-winning churches today than any other day since the New Testament. But did you know that every one of them has both friends and enemies? The ones that love the Lord, that read in the New Testament what God wants us to do, they just love them. The ones that don't want to do what God's Word says to do, def def uh, are ugly to them. They're mean to them. They talk against them. Probably there's no greater man in America than Jerry Falwell. But I would say there's no man in America that has more enemies than Jerry Falwell. Even right in this room, some of you say, I don't like him. You know why you don't like him? You've listened to CBS and NBC and ABC defy him and talk against him and be ugly to him, and you've swallowed hook, line, and sinker what the world says against one of God's men. Shame on you. God wants us to honor the men of God. There's no greater man than W.A. Criswell. He has a lot of enemies. No greater man than Adrian Rogers. I've never heard of a man in our time among Southern Baptists have more enemies than Adrian Rogers, a man that is one of the meekest, most precious men of God I ever met. Stands for the things of God, and yet he is crucified in some circles. What I'm saying to you is, if you want to do what God wants, if you want to build the kind of church that God wants built, you have to be satisfied to please Jesus and not worry about what the rest of the people think or say. Secondly, if we're going to build the kind of church Jesus wants built, that church needs to be saturated in prayer. 
Jesus said, Hitherto have ye asked nothing in my name. Ask, and ye shall receive, that your joy might be full. In Luke chapter 11, verses 9 through 13, Ask, and it shall be given you. Seek, and ye shall find. Knock, and it shall be opened unto you. For everyone that asketh receiveth, and he that seeketh findeth. To him that knocketh it shall be opened unto him. Prayer. The mightiest force in the universe is prayer. Teach me to pray, Lord. Teach me to pray. This is my heart cry day unto day. I long to know thy will and thy way. Teach me to pray, Lord. Teach me to pray. Power in prayer, Lord, power in prayer. Here amid earth's sin and sorrow and care, men lost and dying, souls in despair, oh, give me power, power in prayer. I'm thankful that we have some little cells of the master's minority praying. Every Tuesday night there's a prayer meeting. Every Wednesday night there's a prayer meeting. Lots of times after prayer meeting on Wednesday night there's another prayer meeting. And every once in a while I hear of cells of prayer, a little group that meets on Sunday afternoon. Another group that meets on Monday at noon. Another group that I hear about meets on Saturday morning. And they pray, holding up holy hands in prayer will never do what God wants done without the power of prayer. Thirdly, if we want to be the kind of church that will honor the Lord Jesus Christ and be what He wants, the church needs to be a fo- has a, have a focus on sanctified living and holy. and then go on and live any way you want to live, and that's not New Testament. I've had people come and say, well, I'm not going to come back to your church because you preach that anybody that goes to shows goes to hell. I never said anything like that. I'm not going to come to your church because you preach that anybody takes a drink goes to hell. That's not true. But I want to tell you this. Sometimes when you do those things, you act like you're going to hell and you cause other people to stumble over your life into hell. This book teaches that God wants His people to live holy, godly lives. You are a chosen generation, a holy priesthood, a royal generation, that you should show forth the praises of Him who hath called you out of darkness into His marvelous light. That's God's will. God has a plan of godly, holy living for His people. And I want to encourage us to get in on it. If we want to build the kind of church that will honor the Lord Jesus, it may be a master's minority. There may be a purging. There may be some who will say, well, I'm not willing to pay the price. Out of the thousands that followed Jesus, the Lord took just 12, and one of them was a traitor. And one of them denied the Lord. When it came down to the cross, there was only one there, John. Now I'm saying... I want to urge you to live a godly life, a holy life. This church needs to be holy unto the Lord. God's people need to be holy unto the Lord, sanctified, holy living unto God. And holiness is not so much the outsider peril as it is the inward man committed to Jesus. The inward man yielded to his will. 
We need to have some standards in our lives, standards among leaders. We ask leaders in our church five things. Number one, are you saved? If you're gonna teach Sunday school, you're gonna be a deacon, you're gonna serve the Lord in open service. Number one, are you saved? Do you know you're saved? Number two, will you live a consecrated, consistent, holy life? A separated life to the Lord. Number three, will you be faithful to the major services of the church, Sunday morning, Sunday night, Sunday school, training union? Beloved, it's not God's will for you to miss training union. Training union is one of the greatest agencies our church has, one of the greatest arms our church has to help us grow in the Lord. And when you get to the point where you say, well, I don't need training union anymore because I've got all that, I've been trained and trained and trained, you're in sad shape. Sick and don't know it. You've got spiritual malignancy eating away at you and you haven't even gone to the doctor. Beloved, we need to be in training union to train in Christian service. It's what God wants. Sunday school, sun, training union, morning worship, evening worship, the, the Wednesday night prayer hour. We need to visit to help build our unit of the work. That's God's will. And then we need to be loyal. From over hill and plain, there comes the signal strain of loyalty, loyalty to Christ. Loyalty and faithfulness are two different things. Loyalty has to do with the heart and the allegiance. Faithfulness has to do with your body. You see, your body can be here and you can be grumbling and mumbling and complaining and murmuring and mad and get all kinds of things, just keep on coming. You can be faithful. Well, praise the Lord, you're faithful, but you need to be loyal too. Loyalty has to do with your heart relationship to Jesus Christ in which you love Him and you love His people and you love the work and you love His church. I love Thy church, O God. And you love it with all your heart. Loyalty. So that you find a group of people grumbling and complaining and mumbling and murmuring under their breath. You're not going to have any part with that. I had a couple say to me some time ago, they left our church. They moved membership to another church. The lady said, uh, she called me some time before, she said, Preacher, uh, one of the men has been grumbling and complaining, just murmuring. I said, what's he trying to do? I said, well, I don't know. I didn't know who anybody was doing that. I never, I'm the last to learn about things like that. I said, I didn't know anything about that. Oh, he, she, he said, she said, well, she, he's gotten my husband so upset that we don't want to be part of your church anymore. And they left, because, not because the wife wanted to, but, and not because the husband wanted to, but because some man in our church grumbled. The shoe fits where it. <laughs> you see, God wants us to be loyal, faithful, straight down the line. That's what God wants. We're going to build the kind of church that God wants to have built. Fourthly, there needs to be sacrificial service. Time, talents, our tithes on the altar for God. Time, talents, our all for Jesus. I dare you to do that. Put your all on the altar for God. Be what Jesus wants. And then we need to have a schedule of priorities in which the Word of God is first. 
and we need to be concerned about souls. Our priority areas. We need Jesus at the very top of the list. Jesus first, others second, ourselves last. And last of all, if we're going to be the kind of New Testament church that Jesus can use, there needs to be a soul consciousness and a complete surrender to the Holy Spirit to do what God's Spirit tells us to do. We need to have a soul consciousness. I appreciate Dr. Earl Tapley. I've never been anywhere with him when he wasn't soul conscious. We went to a restaurant several years ago when he was here and, and uh, he got out and g- gave everybody in the, tra- in, the, in the restaurant a little gospel track and asked them if they wanted a map and which way they were going and so on. And the manager came along and said, you can't do that in here. I said to the manager, if you can't do that in here, you don't need my business either. And you had a lot of our business. That business is out of business today. I appreciate somebody that's soul conscious. Those folks that are going to Texas and Mexico and Ohio on mission journeys, you think they're doing that for their health? You think they're doing that for a vacation? They're doing it because they've heard a cry in their heart, go, go ye, go ye go ye. The team that meets on Thursday and goes out surveying the city, working for souls, do you think they do it just because it's a fun time? No, sometimes it's blood, sweat, and tears. I I had somebody say, well, I'm telling you, I'm not going to go and have somebody slam their face, the door in my face. Well, you'd have a hard time in the New Testament church because that happened often. Matter of fact, they'd put you in jail then. And they'd come up and whip you, spank you right in front of everybody, get a long lash and whip you. I'm going to not do that anymore. You'd go home, you'd say, no, Peter, James, and John said, uh, we rejoice that we were counted worthy to suffer for Jesus' sake. You say, but that was years ago. It's the same thing today, brother. If you're going to serve the Lord, it's the same thing. Are you going to take upon you the shame of the glorious gospel? Or are you going to pretend like the rest of the world and think it's popular to be godly. It is not popular to be godly. It is unpopular. And if you're a jolly good fellow with the whole world, something's wrong with your spiritual life. I'm not saying, well, to go around and see how many enemies we can get, but I am saying we need to take stands for Christ and loving and serving and honoring, putting first, if we're going to be the kind of church that Jesus will honor and bless. Now, we've got to decide. You see, you don't have to be that kind of church. Many churches are not. But Glendale Baptist Church has to decide what kind of a church we want to be. Do we want to be one that is satisfied to please Jesus? Do we want to be one that keeps ourselves close to the original pattern of the New Testament? It's not easy. It would be easy for your preacher to come in here and preach little ditties, talk about how pretty everything is in God's wonderful world, this is my Father's world, and so on, and it is, and I love that. And never mention standards. Never take any stands against sin. 
and never urge you and plead with you and beg you to go out in Jesus' name and storm Satan's strongholds. Be easy. And you'd like it a whole lot better. I just want to know what kind of church we want to be. And we need to elect people in places of leadership who will help lead our church in that direction to serve the Lord, to bring this church to the feet of Jesus and go on declaring the glorious gospel to the regions beyond. Now, beloved, some in this room have never been saved. You're not part of the church because you've never given your heart to Jesus. I want to ask you to do that today. Right where you are, just open your heart to the Lord and say, Lord Jesus, come into my heart. I need you. I want you as my Savior. I beg you to do it for Christ's sake. It is the blood that makes an atonement for the soul. Jesus died on the cross for our sins. And when he died, he had you and me in mind. And he loves us. And he wants to save to the uttermost all who will come to God by him. Will you come to Jesus? Come with your sins and your stains and your heartaches and your hurts, but come. And he that cometh I will in no wise cast out. Some of you need a church home. You need to move your membership and start serving the Lord and honor Him with your substance and your life and your influence and your fellowship. Do that today. Some of you have been holding back. You've been thinking, God wants me in Glendale Baptist Church. You've thought about it. You've prayed about it. But you've never gotten around to doing something about it. Today you ought to do something about it. Let's stand together, please. Would you bow your head in prayer? Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for everyone who has come to God's house today. We pray that just now someone will turn away from sin and turn to Jesus. And may this be God's hour of victory in Christ's name. Amen. And we're going to sing God's invitation. And as we sing, this is the invitation of the Lord. You've been so attentive this morning. God bless you. I love you. You're a precious, precious people. Friend, if you don't know the Lord, I want to ask you to turn to Him. If you've been saved, you ought to come and confess Him openly. Take a stand for Him. Say, I'm not ashamed to follow the Lord in baptism. I'm not ashamed to move my letter to this church, to be part of this fellowship. I want to be what God wants. If God has spoken to you about other matters, would you let Him have His way? Whatever it means, just yield your life to the will of God today. There's somebody here, God has spoken to your heart, and you need to surrender to His will. Won't you come today and say, here's my life. I lay it at the feet of Jesus to do with Him whatever He wants me to do. While we begin to sing, is there somebody that will come this morning? As just the first stanza, step out quickly for the Lord. Will you come?